Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor. Now, COVID-19 is not merely a temporary interruption to our everyday lives. It has ushered in a new reality within the working world. For environment, health, and safety professionals, the time to plan for operations within the context of this new reality is right now. So what do you need to be thinking about in order to successfully adapt to these changes while also continuing to keep a keen focus on safety? Well, our guest today has some advice for us on how to do just that. I'm very glad to welcome back Sean M. Galloway, the president of ProAct Safety, to EHS on Tap to help us tackle these important and timely questions. Sean is a consultant, professional speaker, and author of several best-selling books on safety strategy, culture, leadership, and behavior-based safety. He is a monthly columnist for several magazines and one of the most prolific contributors in the industry, and we're also excited to have him as our opening keynote speaker for the upcoming virtual summit, EHS Now, an online educational experience. Sean's presentation, titled Refocusing on and in Safety, will kick off a day of EHS educational sessions on Wednesday, June 17th, and he's kind enough to take some time to talk with us today about the pressing issues currently facing safety professionals. So, Sean, welcome, and thank you for joining us once again on EHS on Tap. Hey, Justin, great to be here. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the COVID-19 crisis has impacted the entire world. Uh, what does this mean for safety professionals? What principles of safety remain the same? And what aspects of EHS need to change to meet the new realities of today? Yeah, a lot has changed. I, I wrote something the other day saying that you know, the playing field hasn't just changed, the entire game has changed. And with a lot of these changes, I think some organizations have uh, have lost their way a little bit in safety. And it's it, it's sad to hear that in some organizations, the level of communication has dropped off drastically because of the inability to get people uh, together. So I, I think the organizations that were already kind of poor at communication, you know, you are using this as Another excuse, while others that were already quite creative are are still looking for new ways to do things, and I think that's that's what we have to keep in mind here is that this is this is a distraction. It's a business continuity distraction, but mm-hmm. you know we still need to keep pushing forward. We we have to do things differently, but safety still needs to move forward differently. And mm-hmm. organizations that are already maintain a degree of agility that the ability to pivot and move, I think are the ones that are going to continue to perform well in safety versus those that say, you know, that's the way we've always done things around here, which as many of us know is a very dangerous saying in, in a lot of organizations, but we need resilience. We need to be able to adapt and, and overcome. And the, the things that we've all always done in safety have to remain true. We still have to be in compliance with you know, all, all the things that are required of us from a company standpoint, from a, from a government standpoint. You know, if you look at how how the CDC is, they just recently released some recommendations on, uh, very interesting to see how this is going to play out, but how they restart schools. Mm-hmm. And think about what they've done and what a lot of organizations are trying to do. They're, they're trying their best just to mitigate the risks. And this is a new risk. So we apply the hierarchy of controls to this risk. We do everything we can to try to eliminate the exposure to a risk. 
Uh, but, you know, a very common saying is the safest places in the world, the safest businesses are the ones that have gone out of business because there's nobody there to get hurt. So there's always a balance. And it's a lot of people don't want to talk about this, but there is a degree of risk tolerance that organizations are having. I hate to say, it, but we're going to have to look at this because we can't have businesses, you know, continue to remain shut down uh, for too much longer. We need to look at how these businesses are are starting to open back up. And as they open back up, we still need to apply the hierarchy of controls. We have to, you know, if there's something we can substitute uh, a human interface or, you know, there's some tasks, for example, where it's it's not possible to do alone, nor is it possible to do while maintaining six foot distance. Um, set, you know, those linemen set, set poles in the ground, you know, they, they need to be near each other. But I think we need to be creative. I think we need to look at different ways of doing things. One of my favorite books put out there is by Edward de Bono and the book's called lateral thinking. It teaches people how to think differently. And I think that's mm -hmm. maybe that's a good recommendation for, for even safety professionals is we, we have to think differently about this. The tools that we used yesterday are not going to solve today's challenges. We're not going to even solve tomorrow's challenges. So we have to look at this and we have to get creative. Uh, we, we, we can't just use this as an excuse for stopping employee safety meetings. And I've seen organizations do that, unfortunately. And that's what I mean by losing their way a little bit, because there's no standstill in safety. We're either getting better or we're going in the wrong direction. And as companies are starting to open back up, we need to keep reminding people about the importance of safety. We need to keep reminding people about the importance of stop work authority or the, or the ability to stop a job if they feel that, that they're at risk or they can't perform it safely. But I think we, the things that we've always done, we're still going to have to do them. We're just going to have to do them differently. And I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a silver bullet to, to accomplish this. Some organizations are just using more FaceTime on Zoom with people that are working from home or other types of, of applications. But I think we cannot use this as an excuse to let safety slide. I think we have to put on the proverbial thinking hats. And I think we need to look at things and say, how can we do them differently? And that's why I'm a big fan of Edward DeBona's book on lateral thinking, because it teaches people how to do precisely that. So it sounds like change management is going to be a big thing in the coming months. What, what are some change management best practices that safety pros can put to use at their organizations? You're right, it will, because this is change. This is, this is drastic change in, in a lot of enterprises. Mm -hmm. And for this, it goes back to you need a strategy. And we've written a couple of books on it. We, I believe we've probably done more work around strategy than, than anyone. And when we've looked at existing strategy, uh, it's it's usually not over a long term time horizon. It's not focusing on what success would look like. There's a lot of things that we can talk more about that, but I think it's going to have to go back to reassessing whatever strategy you had because whatever strategic priorities that were conceived of prior to uh, this facing businesses wherever they are or listening to this from, but before COVID nineteen, a lot of companies, if they did have a strategy, there were strategic priorities that were focusing on on key areas with initiatives that supported all of those key areas. A lot of that's out the window. <laughs> you know, we, we we it's you know when I served in the army, they taught that all strategy is successful until it reaches the enemy because the enemy hasn't voted yet. And 
you know, COVID-19 voted and it changed a lot of different, a lot of things in, in organizations. So, but, but part of that is you need to have a strategy. You, you can't just move forward with change that now's not the time for, you know, ready, fire, aim. You know, we need to be thinking long-term about this. What is, what does our business need to look like? What are the things that we need to, that we need to consider? How do we maintain these COVID-19 prevention precautions while still operating our business safely. So with that, it goes back to really anything with change. Um, Deming uh, taught that Dr. W. Edwards Deming, the founder of the kind of quality movement here in the United States, at least, he taught that people support what they help to create. Hmm. So with that, I would say involve people in how best to go forward. Don't view people as targets of change. View them as participants in the change. And and change, of course, happens best from within. So if you can involve people in the change, they're going to have greater ownership. And this should be a principle we should be applying anyways. My partner in the firm who started our company, Terry Mathis, when when I first met him, we were at a conference. And one of the things he asked the audience was, how often do you wash your rental car? And, you know, a lot of people don't, or if they do, they certainly don't detail their rental car. And why? Because it's not yours. It's not something that you have ownership in. You know, you want people to have, have ownership. You want them to be, to be motivated to, you want to have things for them to participate in, to buy into it, to, uh, to really have that sense of ownership. So they, we need to figure out how to involve them. So for that, you need to pick change agents from within your own organization. You need to pick the right people and we have a list that if anyone wants to contact us, I'm more than happy to provide on the characteristics and how to select the right people. But you need to identify people from within. And that also includes you know, having some sort of leadership sponsor for this for moving forward. Um, John Cotter out of Harvard, uh, he teaches that there are three things that trigger resistance to change. And what's interesting, just a quick digression, is people don't actually naturally resist change. And I know that people listening to this are going to say that that's baloney. Of course they do. It's not that they resist change. They resist the force of being changed. So it's not change necessarily that people resist. It's the force. And we teach in our organization that force change is almost always temporary. When you and the force go away, so does the change. But if people have a sense of ownership in the change, that's why you want to participate. But Cotter, interestingly, said, says in his teaching in his books, that there are three things that trigger resistance to change. One is people don't understand the change. So part of good change management is communicate, 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 and communicate. Uh, You can never communicate too much. Uh, So people need to understand the why. Why are we doing this? The other two are interesting. Uh, They don't like the change, and they don't like the person bringing the change. Now, what's interesting about those two is that a lot of research supports this, Uh, Dale Carnegie even said something about this in 1919. He said, never forget when dealing with the human species, we're dealing with an emotional species, not a logical one. And with that and what the research shows is that we respond emotionally to change before they respond or respond logically to it. So people need to understand the reason for the change and and how it benefits them and how it ties to what we're trying to do as as an organization. Uh, As far as change management practices, I see a lot of organizations, especially in safety initiatives, a lot of top-down approaches and a lot of bottom-up. I'm advocating for bottom-up here by saying involving the employees, but the board supervisors often get squeezed out. 
you know, all the top down and, and bottom up. So they, you need to look at how can we involve the supervisors. In a lot of organizations, more is being placed as far as responsibilities on the supervisor. Uh, they're being asked to train. They're being asked to communicate more without really effective skills, train the trainer, even skills to know how to best communicate, to know how to coach, to know how to train other people. And so we have to consider the supervisor's role in, in all of this and anything in, in general in safety. The most important people to affect performance in any operating category is the frontline supervisor. But in a lot of situations, they're the most undertrained, under-resourced and underutilized uh, individuals in the organization. So how can we involve them and make sure that they understand their roles and responsibilities? Uh, in a lot of areas in the military, they kind of a saying like uh, around firing small bullets first, you know, with change, go out and test some of this, you know, don't have some of these massive changes, pilot some of this stuff. Uh, but with with the change agents, there are what we teach, there are five types of people in organizational change. And I think it's important to look at where some of your folks are here when you're bringing change forward. The five types of people are one, I've already alluded to them, your, your change agents. Those are the people that are your your pioneers, your your mavens, as Malcolm Gladwell calls them in the, his book, Tipping Point. They're the people that like to go first. And we're, we all fall into different categories with different aspects of our life. For example, I'm not a maven when it comes to technology. I'm not camping out outside the phone store waiting for the new product to come out. And, and all. But some, some people are like that. The second type of people, we just refer to them as yes people. And it doesn't mean to sound derogatory. It just means, hey, Justin, we're thinking about doing this over here. Would you like to be involved? Yeah, sure, Sean. What do you need? You know, there are people like that as well. So try to get them on board. The third type of people are your crowd followers. And they're, they're the ones they want to see some action. Once they see a lot of positive movement in a direction, they jump on the bandwagon. Your fourth type of people are your skeptics. Uh, usually people from more of an engineering mindset fall into that because they trust data and have a low opinion of opinions. And then the fifth type of people are what's referred to as the cave people, which is an acronym for citizens against virtually everything. Uh, they're they're going to be opposed to anything, no matter what it is. And often those are individuals not to stereotype, but are more experienced individuals that have been burned by a lot of programs of the month and initiatives that have come and gone in the organization. So you need to look at, from a change perspective, who are the different individuals? Who are the people that, as you start to go in a direction and in any aspect of change, that you can, even if they're not the ones leading it, that they're the ones that you can go to periodically and ask them, you know, hey, this is what we've committed to doing. This is how we're taking things. Do you see that we're going in the right direction? Do you have any feedback for us? What's interesting about culture is that the storytelling and experiences shape the culture. So whomever has the loudest voice in telling the stories are the individuals shaping the culture of new members to the tribe, new members to the culture. A lot of organizations, the employees expect to hear management talking about the positive things that they're doing. But if you can change the storytelling with influential people, then it's their fellow employees telling the story about the positive aspects of change. That's why I'm a fan of checking in with them, you know, where possible. Uh, and, and with this as well, you want to try to anchor some change in, in systems. Uh, you want to have something that reinforces the just like. All, all training, for example, is only as effective as the reinforcement that follows it. So if you're going in a direction, you want to get the beliefs and behaviors aligned, you need to keep reinforcing what it is that you want. But you also need to realize that you know change 
change takes time. Hmm. Uh, you can't expect uh, fast results in, in a lot of different things, depending on the different types of change that you might be implementing. You have to set clear expectations, especially with leadership about realistic timelines and whatever it is we're trying to improve or whatever type of results we're looking for. In psychology, they teach that that all disappointment is based on a set level of expectations. So if you've ever been disappointed in your even your personal life, it's because your expectations weren't being met. We humans don't do a good job setting those expectations. So those in a leadership position need to realize that you know the cultures that they have today weren't created overnight. If you have a 20-year business, it's taken you 20 years to create the culture that you have today. And it's not going to change overnight. When we were writing the book Steps to Safety Culture Excellence, we looked at all the academic theory around culture change. And the kind of consensus was to completely change an occupational culture takes about 10 years. Now, that being said, I've seen organizations change one specific behavior or even belief over a short period of time, even a year. So small changes are possible on a great scale, but you need to set expectations, be realistic that the cultures we have today were created over time and trying to change the culture to adopt new practices, even pandemic prevention practices, that's going to take time to build that muscle. Right. Actually, since you're talking about culture right now, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, you're a safety culture expert. Safety culture is a huge thing within safety. How can EHS professionals maintain a positive safety culture, you know, maybe one that they've already built? How can they maintain it among their workforces during this time? I mean, especially since so many are social distancing or even working remotely. Yeah, that, that's a challenge for a lot of organizations. Uh, but companies maintain excellent cultures with remote workers anyways. I live in Houston, Texas, and we work with a lot of the oil-filled services companies that are based around the world. And they'll have a crew working in Kazakhstan. And a week later, you know, an individual's on a different crew in Cairo, Egypt. And then a week later might be in Iraq somewhere. So, so they're all over the world. So companies have already mm-hmm. done this. And, and I think we need to look at organizations that are that by default and how they operate face some of these different some of these challenges how do they approach it so, so I think that's that's an opportunity to get outside of your comfort zone and respectfully stop breathing your own exhaust and go out and see how other people are are approaching this benchmark network with individuals at conferences like what you're putting on and and through other media as well but to me it goes back to every organization has, a culture has a safety culture it may not be the one that you want but we have a culture and culture is simply uh, aside from beliefs that govern behavior uh, culture is more than just the way we do things around here. it's also the why we do things but really simply put culture is what's common among the group so you may have a culture but what what are the most important beliefs and behaviors that you need to sustain as a part culture. Uh, I've seen, I can't remember who the American inventor said, Daniel, I can't remember his last name, but he said, there's two ways to create complex things, engineering and evolution. I've seen, especially through some of our mergers and acquisitions work that we've done with clients, I've seen organizations that they've had an engineered type of safety culture, you know, very black and white, very structured. And it, 
yielded great performance, merged with a company that's kind of more of a family, <laughs> relationship-driven culture, and they yielded the same type of results. So I think you need to look at the culture that you have and reassess that and say, what beliefs would be game changer or what beliefs do we currently have that's part of our occupational DNA that makes us who we are and how we operate? And what are the things we need to do to, to reinforce that? So to me, it goes back to kind of the purposeful thinking around, you know, what does, you know, if we have a culture of safety excellence, great, or a positive safety culture, whatever we want to call it, what beliefs make that so? What behaviors make that. So what stories reinforce that? We teach that how cultures form people is, is somebody in your organization has a certain perception, a belief about something that impacts their attitudes. If I think my boss really cares a lot about safety, I'll have a different attitude than if I think my boss could care less or is putting me at risk to return to work or whatever it might be. That's going to impact the, the values, the shared beliefs. Mm. But how it's carried out, if somebody has a belief about something, it's manifest in their decisions. Now, before they act on that decision, they have an expectation of what will occur. So it kind of goes back to managing expectations. But they have an expectation of what will occur. And then based on the experience that they have, that informs the storytelling in the organization that either confirms or conflicts with what back to what people believe. So if somebody believes, uh, I reinforced earlier, the importance of reminding people of stopping a job for concern about safety, because we're going to have to look at things differently now and, you know, social distancing, physical distancing and everything, that if if you want people to stop the task because they can't maintain that distance, if, if, if that's something that the organization is focusing on, if somebody decides to stop that job and if they have a good experience with it, they're probably not going to tell their fellow coworkers, hey, I stopped the job and nothing bad happened to me. Now, if they have a great experience, they might tell a few people because their expectations were exceeded. They're pleasantly surprised. You know, hey, the company actually did this and this is what happened. And wow, I was impressed. They, they did what they say that they would do. Unfortunately, the more negative experience somebody has, the louder the storytelling in the organization. So we have to realize that uh, to, to your point about bringing up culture here, is that culture is the most effective sustainability mechanism. So cultures work really, really hard to maintain the status quo. Now, the game has changed. So I think we need to go back to and my advice for PHS professionals is go back to it and say, OK, we're five years from now. The pandemic is, is behind us and we have performed excellent in safety. Uh, what would our culture look like. I, I refer to this, maybe it's helpful for uh, as a memory tool, I refer to this as the Olympics analogy. I, I realized what was happening a few Olympics ago, and unfortunately, we're not going to have the summer 2020. But I remember during the last summer Olympics, as countries around the world are chasing the medal count, we tend to hear who medals in an event before that event before we actually see that event. And I remember the Summer Olympics when the women's gymnastics team from the United States captured the gold. Facebook got in a little bit of trouble because they pushed that notification out across the platform. And people were logged into Facebook and saw that and were angry because they wanted to experience the thrill of watching the event later that day. So we tend to hear who meddled in the event. And then later that day when we're watching the Olympics, we'll watch that activity and we'll say to ourselves as we're watching it unfold, Oh, that's why she got the gold or, oh, just missed it. That's why she got the silver, because they could see the performance that contributed to the results. So back to the question, if 
if we're five years from now, or this is behind us, and we've maintained all this time without any injuries, and we've had a really positive safety culture, a great work environment, people want to come to work, or they want to work from home, or whatever it is, you know, what beliefs made that so? We have to be purposeful and pick a handful of beliefs that make safety truly a core value. Because in a lot of situations, safety is a situational value. You know, it depends on the situation. But if it's really a core value, we have to be purposeful and, and, and distinguish which beliefs make that so. What beliefs would be common? And then what behaviors would reinforce those beliefs? So everybody has an existing safety culture, but we need to be we need to be considering what beliefs would make our culture excellent and what behaviors would reinforce that. And then back to the earlier point about, you know, reinforcing even training, you know, we need to look for examples and we need to keep our finger on the pulse of the storytelling and continue to reinforce and continue to stay, share stories that reinforce the values of the organization, the beliefs that we're trying to create. And this goes back to the challenge in communication and just broadly I've worked with so many hundreds of organizations and a lot of them don't do a good job talking about their successes. They don't share their their successes. They don't share their stories as often as they as they should. So there's a guy by the name of Alan Weiss and he says if you don't blow your horn there's no music. You know, we have to communicate what our successes are. And just a quick example of this that I found kind of funny there's a group in Oregon and they read the steps book and they, they ended up calling their their team they put together to develop a strategy and to change the culture and a bunch of other things. They're doing some great stuff, but they called their team step. And it was something like safety through employee participation. And they were leading this change and and they were leading things going forward. And they were doing a bunch of great stuff. The problem is they weren't communicating with the workforce, all the things that they were doing and all the positive things that were happening, which would demonstrate their culture was improving. And they asked me, they hired me to come in and take a look and give them some feedback. Are they doing the right things? And I'm, of course, happy to do so. One of the questions I, I wanted to ask and answer for myself is, you know, what are the customers and consumers of this team? Uh, you know, what are their thoughts? So I was interviewing some of the workforce. You know, what do you think about this team, this step safety through employee participation team? What do you, what do you think about what they're doing? And because the team wasn't sharing anything that they're working on or any of their successes, the workforce had renamed step to safety through eating pizza because that's all they saw that they ever <laughs> did. So, you know, you'll lose, you have a brand problem with this, but you, do you remember the fact that you have a culture, but if you want that culture to to, if you want it to stay where it is, you need to define what it is that makes that culture so. What are the beliefs that are just core to who we are? What are the behaviors that are consistent? Or if we're moving forward in the future, what would we see? What performance would we see that would explain why we've done so well in safety performance? Absolutely. Now, moving on, you know, speaking of the future, I know that probably nobody wants to think about this right now, but what about the next crisis? Uh, what are some lessons learned that safety professionals can apply to their strategic planning, whether the next crisis for their business is large or, or small, you know, not as big as the one that we're experiencing right now, but a, a crisis nonetheless? What, what are some things they should keep in mind? I think it goes back to one of the first things we were talking about, and that's organizational agility. That's the uh, the ability to not be so rigid in our approaches. I think that organizations typically do some sort of strategic planning on an annual basis, and I think that that's I think there needs to be a 
uh, a different cadence to strategic planning and how we're how we're looking at things. And I think we need to have better indicators and start paying attention to better indicators that tell us when things are starting to change. Um, I love Mike Tyson, the great philosopher and, and boxer, of course. He said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, we were punched in the face. You know, most organ, most people did not see this particular thing coming. Uh, most organizations, even with great business continuity planning, didn't anticipate this one. So I think it's going to have to go back to having greater confidence in the efficacy of our strategy that we have to be able to plan and be able to adapt quicker in organizations. And obviously, the larger inter- the enterprise, the harder that that is to do. I'm, I'm not trying to be too theoretical here, but I think it goes I think it goes to having a stronger strategy, but also having some indicators and having some flexibility in that strategy that, you know, there could be things that we're just not going to that we're not going to see. And and that also goes to improving the metrics and and the measurements. And I think I saw that somebody is going to be talking about that at the conference. So I don't want to talk too Mm -hmm. much about that because I'm sure that'll be a fantastic uh, discussion, but organizations, you know, they're, they're moving well beyond even leading indicators to looking at things that measure value and measure progress. But from a pandemic perspective, standpoint, Dr. Larry Brilliant, I think it was a TED Talk in 2007. Uh, he had a mantra that I think is a fantastic mantra, and I've been advocating it since I since I heard that on a TED Talk. But he said the key to pandemic prevention and, and prevention of the spread is early detection and early response. And I think that's so true and so relevant today is early detection, early response. Same thing with cancer and major disease. If you can detect things early and respond, you know, that you can get ahead of the curve. A lot of organizations, because they didn't have some of the business continuity planning, because they didn't have some agility in their strategy, reacted. And, you know, unfortunately, when we react, that's a bad thing. Just like in medicine, if your body reacts to a transplant, that's it's not a positive thing. If your body responds to it, that's positive. So I think we need greater agility within our strategy. And I think we need to have the ability to have better indicators. And we're paying attention more to kind of what's going on to the world around us and within our culture before we're surprised by major events like this or before we're surprised by process safety related events or even injuries. Because uh, in a lot of situations, if we're surprised by events, then we weren't paying attention to the indicators that something might be coming. Now, we're sort of reaching the end of our time here, but before we sign off, any other final thoughts for our audience? Yeah, I would say that, and this will be a large part of what I'm talking about during the conference is that we have to get focused in safety during this time. Right now, companies are trying to, as we're starting pe- starting things back up, we're trying to remind people about the importance of safety. But that's kind of like telling people, be safe today, be safe today. When when you drive, and those of you that are still at home, maybe you're not driving around as much, maybe you've sheltered in place this entire time, but next time you drive, at least realize you do something that's called focus and scan, focus and scan. You focus on the lines or the curbs because that's what helps you navigate, but you don't just stare the lines and curbs. You scan your sector to see if you're in a neighborhood, there might be children that are playing or oncoming vehicles or animals. So you focus and you scan, especially right now, we don't need to just be focusing on safety. We need to be focusing in safety. We need to be very specific about the most important things to be paying attention to because 
people are distracted and some organizations have a skeleton crew because they don't have as many people that they're returning back. They're not all coming back at once. They're coming back in phases and in a lot of enterprises. So we need to make sure that we keep the focus in safety. So my advice is, is continue the conversation at, as often as possible around three things. What are the risks that we're going to be facing today during our tasks? Make sure that we're thinking in advance about both the big risks, the things that could easily kill us, but also the low probability risks, the things that are common to the work that we, that we perform that may not hurt us every single time, but, but are out there. So what are the big risks? What are the common risks? What precautions do we need to take to control or mitigate some of those risks? So what are the things that we have to do and what are the things that we could do at our discretion that could prevent you know, the, the, this virus from getting further or, or ourselves from getting injured? And how do we monitor each other that we're regularly taking these precautions? So look at, especially now, look at your risk exposure and break it down into those key areas. What are the things that we have to make absolutely sure we're controlling? What are the top three or four, you know, fatality types of, uh, of possible exposures that we have here, or serious injury, at least types of exposure. And then what are the things that are are actually really eating our lunch? What are the things that are more likely to occur if we continue to perform the test? So what are those common things? I think right now it is so important that as we're bringing people back in, that we keep them focusing in a laser-like manner around what are the most important things that they need to pay attention to and monitor that. If there are three or four things that are most important to the workforce for the prevention of injuries or spreading of illnesses, you know, what can you do over the next 90 days to get those into people's heads? We've long taught in our company, if you don't get a focus in somebody's head, a behavior, it's never going to get into their habit. So work really hard to be focusing in safety during this time around the most important things to pay attention to, not just the overall importance of safety. Absolutely. Well, that sounds great. And we're really looking forward to your presentation at EHS Now. Thank you again, Sean, for joining us on EHS on Tap. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, and thank you to our audience as well for tuning in today. And we hope that you will join us virtually for Sean's presentation and others at EHS Now, an online educational experience taking place Wednesday, June 17th. To learn more about the virtual summit and to register, click on the links that appear on this podcast episode's EHS Daily Advisor webpage. Now, in the meantime, stay healthy, be sure to keep an eye out for new episodes of EHS on Tap, and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest and best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap. 